Isaiah chapter 1. In many ways, the Protestant Reformation was about worship. How do we worship God? Are there acceptable ways or unacceptable ways of doing that? The Reformers and their successors came up with the conviction that when we draw near to God, we have to be directed by the same Holy Scriptures that tell us how we can find a relationship with God. In other words, that it is the Scriptures that tell us who to worship and how to worship. And so they got rid of all the extras, all the things that had been accumulated as they saw it over the Middle Ages that had been added to the worship of God, the altars and relics, the statues and organs, the choirs, and the pilgrimages. And they began to focus on simple worship. They had a biblical liturgy. The Bible shaped their liturgy. We still use their liturgy here today. They, the Bible was the content of their singing. They sang only from the Psalms. They had no external musical accompaniment. And in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, that was the way it was until about 150 years ago, the organ was rehabilitated. And choirs were allowed in on the condition the choirs did not sing in place of the congregation and that the organ did not dominate the singing of the congregation. Those were the, the, two, uh, the two caveats, and that's what we do here. Also, human hymns were admitted. Though there was a lot of arguing about that, and it took a long while for them to be wholly accepted, but they came in and sadly have taken the place of the Psalms. Because though we read the Psalms, these were meant to be sung. They were meant to be the songbook of the people of God. Well, today we have our own worship wars. They're about whether we're traditional or contemporary or whatever, or whether we have liturgy or none. Uh, and even today, especially in the evangelical world, whether in fact there is such a thing as public worship or not. Well, in this passage we've just read, we're going to discover that God is pretty passionate about his worship. Let me fill you in a little bit about the background. In the first part of this chapter, Isaiah has been passing on God's verdict on his own people. It's not the world that's in view, it's the church of his day that was Israel. And he's been saying some pretty tough things about Israel. He's been saying that Israel, in its corporate life together, has sinned. Now, I know that word sin is an unusual word to use in church. Uh, I had a friend tell me this week that uh, they were at a church recently in the last few weeks. It was a PCA church, and the Bible reading was projected onto the wall. And in this Bible reading, the word sin was used, but it was in brackets. And the leader of the worship explained to the congregation that although the word was there on the text, it was in brackets because we don't use that word. It's a negative word. It has negative connotations. Therefore, we will not use it publicly. But we, we've got it on there because you probably need to know it was there in the Scripture. Now, you come to Isaiah chapter 1, and let me tell you this. God rubs our noses in 
all the words he can find in the dictionary to describe the sin of Israel. Their sin, their rebellion, their iniquity, their evil doing, over and over again, like a punch of karate punches, God gets in on the act to say that his view of Israel is decidedly negative. His own people. In fact, God has more to say negatively about his own people than he does the people outside of the church. It's just part of the reality. He says, not only, by the way, does he say that they're sinful, but he's actually acted. And we read in that first section that already they're suffering wounds and bruises and bleeding wounds and they're There's been military invasion, there's been burned cities and foreign occupation, and only Zion, only Jerusalem remains. And in fact, at the end of that section, verse 9, if you glance, you'll see that had God not done something gracious, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities that God nuked in the book of Genesis. He obliterated them. He annihilated them. And that's the state of Jerusalem and Judah. That's the state they would have been in unless God had paused. And remembered his promise that no matter how much judgment he sent on his church, there would always be a church in the world. Verse 9, there was a remnant, a few survivors, people that God preserved because he promised that no matter what happened, no matter how bad the church became, no matter how bad the world became, there would always be a remnant, a church, in the world to be a witness to him in the world. Now the connector with what's just happened and and what we're now reading this morning is in those two words, Sodom and Gomorrah, these two ancient cities that were destroyed. And when you come to verse 10, I want you to look at this very carefully. Who is God now speaking to? Look at this. He is talking to the rulers of Sodom the people of Gomorrah. And you can hear a sigh in the congregation as Isaiah is preaching this to them. And they're saying, who on earth are you talking to? We are not Sodom and we are not Gomorrah. We are Zion, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of the Most High. And Isaiah says, actually that's not what God says. He's just contrasted Sodom and Gomorrah and you in that he spared you and not them. But now he's saying Sodom and Gomorrah have gotten into your DNA as the people of God. You are Sodom and Gomorrah, both your leaders and you as the people. And he uses the most abhorrent names imaginable, the most despicable and deplorable names that they could find and that were available, and he applies them to his own church, his own people. That is the solemn thing about this first verse of our section today, verse 10. And he's thinking especially of their relationship to him and their experience of him and their worship of him. He had told them how they should worship He had given them those instructions after he'd redeemed them. And then after he'd given them the moral law, he told them how they could worship him and stay in a relationship with him. That's what public worship was all about. But now, 
God's had enough of their public worship. Three words that God wants to say to them. First of all, listen to the word of God. Attend to the worship of God. And submit to the will of God. First of all, listen to the word of God. You notice in the flow of the poetry, the repetition. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the teaching of our God. He wants us to listen up. He wants these people who are asking the question, who is he talking to? Who does he mean by Sodom and Gomorrah? Does he mean us? And he wants them to know that the one who is against them is Yahweh, their own personal God. He is against them. And he's speaking to them. He's addressing them. He's saying to them, of all places, you, my people, are behaving as if you were Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the law of your God. God is getting their attention by his word. He had told them in the beginning that all of their worship practices were to be shaped by his word. That's why the reformers got rid of all those things. They couldn't see them in the Bible. They were in the grip of the Bible. They felt what God had said should shape what they did in church. They had to be convinced. It took them hundreds of years to be convinced that you could accompany singing with musical instruments because they weren't mentioned in the New Testament. And because they took seriously this principle that it had to be the Word of God. The Word of God rules the church of God. Here is God coming to His own people and He's saying, you need to listen. You not just need to have the, the sound reverberating around your building of God's Word. You have to hear it. Hear it with your ears and with your mind and with your heart. Hear what God the Lord has to say to His people. That's what Jesus is saying to the churches in Revelation over and over and over again. He comes to them and He says, those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus calls for attention from His own people. Listen to the Word of God. Secondly, attend to the worship of God. I want you to notice that he is not saying that what they did was unbiblical or wrong. He's not saying that. He's not saying that they were not giving attention to something that he himself had ordained. That is the public worship of God. If you just glance at verse 12, what are they doing when they come into public worship? They're doing the same as we do. They've come, they're coming Quote, to appear before me. That's what they were coming to do. We know that we'll live all of our lives under the gaze of Almighty God and that we can never escape from Him. But when we gather together, we are especially in the dynamic of living stones in this temple Jesus is building. We are especially in the presence of God. He tells the world, I am especially at home. When my people are gathered together, and we gather together to appear publicly, corporately, as a church, before our God. That's why we gather. You appear before me. These are, look at verse 12 again, these are my courts. I'm here. They're in my courts. 
So God is not against public worship, nor is he against the worship in their temple or today as our gathered company of people. He's not against their liturgy. In fact, he invented their liturgy, the things they're doing, the prayers they pray and the praises they offer and the, and the sacrifices they make were all in God's worship manual, the, the law of Moses. That's the original book of church order. They were all there. The songs they sang were all in the divinely given hymn book, the book of Psalms. They were all there. They were doing things at, by the book. Everything they were doing was by the book. But here's the a, here's a thing. The further people get away from a relationship with God, very often the more attention they give to what they do in their public worship. So, they try cranking up the stuff that they do for God. They crank up the ceremony. They do more. More singing. More praying. They try to compensate for their unbelief and their disobedience by making it more, more, whether it's more ornate or more enthusiastic or more liturgical or more dynamic or whatever it may be, it's more. And they give more to God as if by doing more, they're getting God's attention. That's what they were doing. So what does God have to say to them? Listen to what he has to say to them. I do not delight. What, what is to me the multitude of your sacrifices? They were multiplying their sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. Up until this time, you see, all these legitimate things, things that were required of them, were being offered and were being accepted. But something had happened in Israel, and they were not acceptable to God anymore. Those vehicles for a serious relationship with God had lost their impact. Well, there was an element of formalism. They were going through the thing, they, and they were, they were adding to it. In fact, there's a trend in religion, and it's gone on throughout history, where the outward aspects of religious behavior and worship, which are easy to see and to measure, become the test. Are we doing it the right way? Well, that's the test of the traditional church. Are we doing it the right way? Are we doing it with life? That's the test of the modern church or the contemporary church. But in both cases, it's an external measurement of whether or not our worship is good or right. Is it enthusiastic enough? Is it proper? Neither of those, I have to say this to you, neither of those amount to a hill of beans as far as God is concerned, as we'll see. That's not how he measures our worship. He measures our worship by how we behave once we leave the building. That's what was going on here. That's the real test of our worship. They, they were multiplying their offerings. They were also multiplying, by the way, do you notice the convocations? Those were the conventions and the conferences. They were adding those in. They thought by doing this, they would become more acceptable to God. Here's God's view. Did you listen? I've had enough of burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. I cannot endure 
your solemn assemblies. Your appointed feast, my soul hates. I am weary. Your worship makes me sick. I want to throw up, God says. Listen to him. God is as far away as you can get from the stiff upper lip, laid-back, poker-faced, even-toned, objective observer, the phlegmatic, phlegmatic Englishman. God is not like that. God feels. He is affronted. He is disgusted. He cannot find stronger language. He is not nice. He is not dispassionate. He is moved to the very depths of his being. Do you know there's a false sort of piety goes around in certain quarters where niceness masquerades as holiness, where euphemisms masquerade as truth. God will have none of that. He will have none of that. God is better than nice. God is holy. Blindingly, blisteringly holy. He is utterly other from us. He is apart from us. God is great. Here's what he says to his people who are doing all the right things. He says to them, verse 15, I'll hide my eyes from you instead of lifting up the light of my countenance, my face upon you and smiling at you. I'm going to hide my face from you and you won't see me. God opposes their offerings, not because they're bad, but because they're vain. Notice what the stated problem is not. It's not that they didn't sing enthusiastically or pray fervently or take notes feverishly during the sermons. It wasn't that they didn't have enough songs to sing or that they sang too many of them or too few of them or that there wasn't good enough music to accompany what they were up to or that they weren't serious enough. None of that is what God's objecting to. None of that. What was the issue? Was it that they were worshipping but not enjoying the worship? I'm going to tell you something. God couldn't care a hoot whether you enjoy your worship. That is the last thing God's concerned about when you come to worship Him. Do you know that? Was it that they were not feeling moved by the worship? God's not even interested in that. Was it that they weren't, didn't like some aspects of the service? Could He care less? I think Eliza gets it right in My Fair Lady. Words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him and now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? Don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Tell me of no dreams filled with desire. If you're on fire, show me. This is what God says to his people. You can talk, talk, talk. As much as you like, but I want you to show me. Yahweh was not writing off their liturgy, but he wanted to see reality. I wonder, I wonder if you know what it's like on a Sunday morning not to want to go to church. Mother came to her son's door one Sunday morning, knocked on his bedroom door and said, Son, it's time to get up. Muffled noises from inside. She went away. She came back again. A little later, she knocked his door. She said, son, it's time to get up. It's Sunday morning, and it's time for you to get up and go to church. 
Some more mumblings. She comes up again. She knocks his door and she said, you're going to be late for church. You have to get up. He said, I don't want to go to church. I don't like church. I don't like the people at church. They don't like me. I don't want to go to church. Give me two good reasons why I should go to church. His mother said, son, you're 43 years of age. And you're the minister. You need to go to church. You ever think God doesn't want to come to church? Isaiah is relaying the message from God to his people. I don't want to be in your church on Sunday. I don't want to be there. It makes me sick. God's calling His people to attend to His worship. And thirdly, God's calling His people to submit to His will. Look at verses 16 and following. Let's get serious. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice or correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He refers them to their own worship ceremonies. The washing there refers to the, the kind of wash, ceremonial washing that was available to them. It signified something that he calls their attention to one of the means of grace. We, we might call people's attention to baptism. What does that represent? Or to the Lord's table. What does that signify? Or to the preaching of the word that is described as a kind of hosing down of the people of God. You are all clean, Jesus says, through the word that I've spoken to you. He calls their attention to the means of grace. He says, use the means of grace, but do something. I don't know if you've seen the video clip. It's, uh, I've been trying to remember the name of this. One of the, one of the bit, re, really famous comedians uh, who, in this video clip, is acting in the part of a counselor. And various people are coming in, coming in with their problems. They sit, and he listens to them as they tell them about these terrible things that are going on in their lives. And, da, 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 da. and after they've finished, he folds his arms, and he gives them his advice. By the way, this is what you'd get from me, okay? Because that's where I learned my counseling from, this particular video series. He, he folds his arms, he looks at them, and he says, Stop it! <laughs> Next person comes in, they tell him what they've done, and so forth. He looks at them, looks at them, and says, Stop it! And out they go. Do you know that's God's way of counseling? Listen to him. Listen to him. Wash yourselves. That, you know, deal with this. Remove the evil deeds. Don't stop it. Stop it. So what? He tells them. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He is not, by the way, introducing here a kind of foppy, sentimental social gospel such as destroyed vast areas of the church in the early 20th century. He is addressing his holy people. And there were those among his own holy people, Israel, who were being unjustly treated. And he is saying to them, true religion is not just you, Jesus, and me for each tomorrow. Just Jesus and me. No, true religion is both personal and public. It has to do with me and my church, my people, the people of God that I'm a part of. It is comprehensive. 
And we are among ourselves to love justice and show mercy. And that will spill out into the world because we'll take that with us into the world, into the walks of life in which God has placed us. And he specifies what the issues were. There were those who were marginalized in Israelite society, the the orphans, the widows among them. And built into the law of God, there was concern for justice for the poor and needy of Israel. And they were neglecting them. You know, this very same issue arose early on in the life of the church. The diaconate was formed in Acts chapter 6 for the specific reason of addressing this kind of issue. It was to make sure that justice was done for the least of these, my brethren. For those who are not popular, for those who are not nice, for those who are a bit abrasive, for those who are marginalized, for those who don't have influence in high places, for the people, as it were, on the fringes of the church, of the church, who do not command our respect, but whom we are to love in Jesus' name. Those people. The church is only as good as how it treats the most difficult of its members. You pray for our deacons as they do that regularly and spend, invest their own time in doing that. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What is it? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The God of the Bible is passionate about justice. It starts among us. It spills over into the world. William Wilberforce, for example, saw the injustice of the slave trade and having been converted, had to use his influence as a parliamentarian and for 25 years of being knocked back, of being marginalized and ostracized and criticized and frustrated, he pegged away until eventually He got what he'd sought all of his life just before he died. The abolition of the slave trade. Because justice had begun in his heart. And he sought it in the church and outside. And look what's on offer here. Come now, says God. Come now. Listen listen to this. Isn't this a gracious word to those of us who feel our faults and see our sin. Come now, let us reason together. He's talking to the corporate church here. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Here is a gracious God. It comes unexpectedly in the flow. I I can't stand you. He's saying right up to this point, now he says to us, come now. Come into my chambers, says the judge. Come into my office. Let's reason together. I want to spell it out to you. Cause and effect. You do this, you lose the land you lose the land. I promised that would happen. You don't want that, do you? Submit to my will and you gain the land and God will bring blessing into your life. My, my blessing, spiritual blessing. What I'm offering you, he said, is this. He says is this. I'm offering an effective cleansing. You've been abusive of people. Some people are so marginalized in your society. Remember, the church was a nation in those days. It was a society as well as a church. And they were marginalized. Some of them had even died. 
Can that happen in the church? I think it can. Not somebody dies of hunger, perhaps, but perhaps dies lonely because the church as a body, somehow or other, has not ministered to them. I don't know. But here's what God says. Though your sins be scarlet and crimson, the colors of blood guilt, there is pardon. All sin demands a death sentence. Scarlet and crimson. He offers that they can be like snow and wool. Utter cleansing. Utter cleansing. Total cleansing. Isn't that an amazing promise? He's saying to his church, repent. Repent. Turn round. Repent. Turn back to me. Submit to my will. Do what you need to do to clean up things. Just do that. Do it. And you will enjoy, you will enjoy the reality of my promise. Scarlet and crimson. Wiped out. Wool and snow. White as wool. White like snow. Later on in Isaiah... Isaiah tells us that this God who deals with us like this does not keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't keep on dredging up our past. Perhaps you have come from a, a background in which there are things in your past that you're ashamed of, things which the, the mind, the memory keeps recalling. Let me tell you this. God never helps you recall those things once he's dealt with them. He never does. Somebody else is helping you remember those things, and it's not the Lord. It's the accuser, who is Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah says what God does is he takes our sins and he deposits them in the deepest part of the ocean. And guess what? Your sins don't act like corks from a bottle. You throw a cork of a bottle into the sea, what does it do? It bobs up again, doesn't it? Your sins will not bob up again. When he puts them into the depths of the ocean, they stay there. And he puts a sign up saying, no fishing in these waters. Down in the depths of the deepest sea. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. We used to sing when I was in Sunday school. Now my soul is free and in my heart a song. That's God's promise. And when you turn to him, guess what? You can come back to worship. And the God who said, I won't listen to your prayers any longer, even though you make many of them, I will not listen, in verse 15, promises he will listen and hear. And all of this is underwritten. Do you know where we started? We started with hear the word of the Lord. We end with the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All of these promises are underwritten by the word, the promise of God himself for you. That he will deal with your past, deal with your sin, deal with our sin, and resolve the issue altogether. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that for all of us here, 
no matter who we are, no matter what we harbor in our hearts, what memories haunt us, what fears are often awakened within us, can find in you today, once and for all, absolute, total forgiveness, cleansing, and renewal. Help us as a church, because this is a word to the church, not so much to individuals. But help us as a church to pursue justice. We pray for our deacons and and deaconesses and the ministry that they have. Thank you, Lord, for their, their sacrifice of time and energy and for the generosity of the congregation that gives to the deacons fund, for the many that they have helped and are helping. And pray that in all of their service that they would be dispassionate, be uh, objective, be willing to serve wholeheartedly, and give them every gift and grace for the work they do, we ask. And that we, Lord, as individuals, would welcome our brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. In that name we pray. Amen.